just the very fact of the way he described that surgery, and I wondered if that was anywhere near what we do in a sermon. Take out your innards and beat them up a while and stuff them back in you. Um, We are confronted by the Word of God, and that should change us, right? It should. We're being conformed to the image of Christ, and uh, as we go through the process, sometimes it's not very comfortable for us. Because you know how we are. I say we. I didn't say how you are. (laughs) But how we are in the fact that uh, it's contrary to our nature to be like Christ. So thankful for his faithfulness in our life and what he's doing to make us more like him. Um, Today we're going to spend time in his word. And I don't doubt again that this is part of that process that might leave us a little bit bruised up. But... It would be good for us to spend time with Christ. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you even before we begin uh, reading your word or studying from it, acknowledging, first of all, that this book was written by you. And it is life to us. It is truth to us. And it draws our attention directly to you, to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's at work within us to help us understand these things and to apply them, knowing the process is to make us like Christ. All these things are operating right now and operating in this next 45 minutes or so as we spend time in your word. And we want to be receptive to your work. We want to be as just your children who sit at your feet and say, teach us, Lord, and help us, Lord, and change us, Lord. We know that you love us. That's why you gave us the word. And this is not some exercise that you delight to just torment us with the difference between what is righteous and what we are. But, Lord, it's something that you give to us out of love. Because more than anything, you want us to look like your son. And what an honor that is to be called your children, first of all, and then to be the target of your grace and mercy and your work. And eventually, where we stand before the throne and we reflect our Savior and you get the glory. What a day that will be. Until then, we are in the process and help us with it today. We pray as we spend time in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start. We're going to Revelation 22, so you probably already have a bookmark there or so. Notice the new chapter, 22. Isn't that a great number? What that means is that uh, out of the 22 weeks that we are spending in Revelation, we are on week number 29. And... uh, I think we're going to do 22 weeks and 31 weeks. How's that sound? Uh, that's not too bad, actually, considering the amount of material in the book of Revelation. We had a few detours along the way, and for some reason I had to work a couple of cha- sermons out of each chapter. Eventually it happens that way. But here's just so you know, uh, there are three parts to this chapter, too. There's just too much. Just too much. Maybe when we're done with this, we'll go back and start in chapter 1 and take it slower. No? 
Okay. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. John 7, 37, 38. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Can you hear him yell it? Chapter 8, verse number 12. John eight twelve. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Incredible statements, the Jews thought so. Watch what chapter 22 in Revelation does with phrases like that. Chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. Now understand, as I've been saying this to you for several weeks here, we are on a tour and your guide, your pastor has never been to this place. And neither have you. Or anyone else, for that matter. Because it's not made yet. We are getting a glimpse of the new heaven, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Chapter 21 started that. And today, verse 1 through 5, is our final glimpse of the new heaven, new earth, and the New Jerusalem. Our final glimpse of it in this book. Next week we're going to talk about a response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's in this chapter as well. Verses 8 and 9 and verse 11 and verse 14 and 15 are all designed around the response to this message. And then our third approach to this chapter will be on what I call the urgency of the message of the book of Revelation. The urgency, and I'm going to have verses all over this chapter, but uh, two phrases keep popping up. One of them is, it's coming soon. And the second is, I'm coming quickly. And we're going to talk about the urgency in about two weeks. But today, a final glimpse, if you will, at the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I'm going to encourage you to read through chapter number 22. Not right now, later. All right, this week sometime. Spend some time reading through chapter number 22. It's, a, it's kind of a long chapter, and I'm not going to use our time this morning to do that because I have it in my notes here, but it's a good three pages of my notes alone. And uh, if you saw how many pages there actually were, uh, you'd tune out right now. So I'm not going to do that. Um, we're going to deal with the first five verses today, all right? So let me look at this, how fast we're going. We're already on page three. Um, verse number one through verse number five, a final glimpse of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street... On either side of the river was the tree of life, 
bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow, let me set the context for you. Chapter 21 and 22, as you already know, are describing the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Most of the information in these chapters involves the new Jerusalem. Verse number 1 of chapter 21 dealt with the new heaven and new earth and just said it. As simple as that, there was a new heaven and new earth and the old earth and the old heaven passed away and there was no more sea. That's about the extent of the description in chapter 21 on heaven and earth. The rest was on the new Jerusalem. And I want to make those distinctions very clear to you. These things are created after the old heaven, which is, by the way, the present one, and the old earth, which is the one you're sitting on right now, has passed away. Even the old Jerusalem, which exists at this moment, will be gone. There will be a new one. If you say, okay, I, I want to understand that better, just go back in our sermon library for about three or four weeks. And we've been describing that for several sermons. Uh, but it's all on our website if you want to go look at that. But the truth comes from Second Peter chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 66. And there's many other places I could take you to remind you of that. But those are the two key passages that shows you that John just wasn't throwing something brand new out there. It's been said before. God has said this will happen. And even though it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. That day is coming. That's going to be a terrific day, by the way. Now, as you begin to look at chapter number 22, I want to remind you that what you're viewing is the New Jerusalem. That particular, very large city, about 1,500 miles one way, north, 1,500 miles to the east, 1,500 miles to the south, 1,500 miles to the west. A big, big city. And the descriptions of it, we've already seen walls, we've seen foundations, we've seen gates, we've seen streets described to us, and all those things in chapter number 21. We are still on the description of that city. Now, what we have seen already, just a summary from chapter 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We saw in verse 22 of chapter 21, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. The gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Now, I read those verses on purpose because as I was reading chapter 22 to you a few moments ago, the first five verses, no doubt you heard some of the same phrases. They're being repeated to you in chapter 22. For example, chapter 22, verse 1, it speaks of the throne of God and of the Lamb being there. That's exactly what you saw in verse 22, the previous chapter. This is how I know we're still talking about the New Jerusalem. In verse number 2 of chapter 22, he talked about the healing of the nations. The nations. And didn't he reference that in chapter 21? The nations were referenced in verse 24, 25, and 26. He talked about the fact that in verse 5 of chapter 22, there is no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of the lamp or of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. Didn't we just read that in verse chapter 21? It was verse 23 and verse 25. Both made reference of that as well. So, I'm just simply showing you, we're still on the New Jerusalem. The same description is carrying over so that we're not mistaken with, what is this place? And I think you may say, well, this is kind of elementary, Pastor. Why are you doing this? Because wait till you hear some of the interpretations of chapter number 22. If you don't realize it's the same city as the New Jerusalem before, and that it's being created and set up after the heavens and the earth, the present ones are destroyed, and this is all the new project of the Lord on the other side, if you don't remember all that, you can get confused with some of the things I'll show you in a minute. Because if we are not careful with hermeneutics here, we're going to have a mess. Let me give you simple things here. This is not a a complicated message for you in these first five verses today. There are basically three things. At first I called three initial things. And then I said, no, I don't like that word. Three unimportant things. No, I, I didn't like that word. Three significant things. I was trying to think of a good adjective to go with things. I'm going to say three things. Because you can put in your adjectives how you ever like it to fill in for that. These are important. All right? They pointed out before. They're brought up again. Why is the Lord repeating these three things? Unless he really wants us to see them. What is the problem is that we like to talk about the streets of gold. We like to talk about pearly gates. We like to talk about what it's going to be like to be there and have our mansion and all those other things. What are the three things God wants you to focus on? All right. Number one, his throne is there. His throne is there. It's going to be kind of hard to have all this stuff without God being present. His throne is there. That's very important. That we're going to see in just a minute. The second thing he keeps emphasizing is that the nations will have access to the city and its provisions. You may say, well, that's 
What's that? I don't even get that. That's important enough that God says it twice. The nations will have access to the city and its provisions. And the third thing that's been emphasized twice is the Lord God will be the light source. There will be no more night. All right, those are important things. So let's walk through there and let's talk about God's throne first. Now understand something when you mention God's throne here and the Lamb's throne that will be there is brought up right away in verse number 1, chapter 22, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, talking about a river, of course. But these things that we see set up here are not just temporary things, like a little fix here, a little bit fixed there, something that's temporary, something that's going to last for a little while and then be replaced by another idea or another concept. Something else is going to come in here and change it. There's something very annoying to me, personally, in the whole world of computers and, and programming. When they set up a program that I'm comfortable with, and all my stuff works with, and I know which buttons to push and where to go and everything, and then they do an update and change everything. It drives me crazy. I don't know about you. Maybe you like changes. Now, I, I'm comfortable. If I had one of those old 93 versions or something, I'd be very happy. But it's changed, and it changes, and it changes. Have you noticed that? You who work with computers, it's just always... They have to change the color of a button. All new thing. There's a family that I know that can't go a week, and I'm going to say it this way, they can't go a week without rearranging their furniture in their living room. And I know that because I used to go every Saturday and I'd sit with the husband and we did a Bible study together every single Saturday morning and the house living room was rearranged every single week. They had a piano in that room. It was on a different wall every single week. And I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's somebody that just can't stand things like they are. What does the word forever mean to you? When something is set and it stays that way forever, it says here, that the throne of God is there, and the Lamb is there. In verse 3, his bondservants will serve him. Verse 4, they will see his face. Verse 5, at the end, they will reign forever and ever. The setup is permanent. How big is forever to you? Think about this for a minute. The colors won't fade. They won't go out of style. The streets don't need potholes filled or bridges replaced. No election of new officers. No improvements needed. No decay at all. No storm damage. No tax bills. Sound good so far? I said, what would that be like? We live in a world that's always, always, always in transition. Imagine a place that's forever set. It's too big sometimes to think. But it says that the Lord's throne will be there and always be there. 
There will not be any changes to that. Who's going to replace him? No one. What I also like about this, as it says, we will see his face in verse number 4. There will no longer be sin between us like a cloud to prevent us from full access to him. That's also hard to put our thoughts all the way around, isn't it? Full access to the Lord all the time. And if you want to know, well, what's this going to really look like? One of my favorite, favorite passages in Scripture is Ephesians chapter 2. And the passage that speaks so uh, wonderfully to me is verse number 6, where it talks about the fact that he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now you say, well, that's positional, Pastor. That's our salvation. Well, that's all true. But literally, the future will come where the bride, the church, will sit with him and reign with him from that throne. That's awesome, folks. That is awesome. And what's happening there is just what chapter 2, verse 7 says in Ephesians. And it says this, so that in the ages to come... He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I, as believers in Christ, as the bride of Christ, will forever be a demonstration of how great is his grace. Think of it. Forever. Sitting right beside him, if anyone brings it up, what does grace look like? He's going to point right to you. Isn't that awesome? He's going to say, that's what grace can do. That's what grace can do. Forever we are displays. That's why he puts us up there in the front. That's not because of how great we are, but how great he is. And he's going to say, this is my forever display of what I'm able to do in my grace and my kindness. I could do this. Who's going to look? The church is all sitting up there. Who's going to see it? Well, the church, you understand, is uniquely called and secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a church, according to Ephesians 5, that he will present before himself holy and blameless. The angels will look at it and wonder with the deepest of all. How do I know that? Because Scripture says so. They're still amazed. They say, you save that? You save them? Wow! You died for them? Wow! I don't know if angels say wow. But I think there's going to be a lot of that going on. As the angels observe what God's grace looks like. They're one group that's going to be in awe. Another group, I think, will be the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints will be there. Now, they have their own uniqueness, too. But they are not the church. They will acknowledge how wonderful the Lord has been to us. They're going to see that and say, wow! Again, I don't know if they say it that way. But they're going to be impressed with what God's grace can do. And then there's tribulational saints, another group. And I'm aware that not many Bible commentaries make these distinctions. 
You've heard me make them a lot. But I make them because, in my opinion, we have a very messy hermeneutic and all the participants are confused. And I just want to clear things up and help you along to understand that tribulational saints have their own uniqueness. They have their own place in God's plan. And yet they will see and praise the Lord for the wonderful things he's done through the church. The millennial saints. Now that's a really unique group to talk about. But they will also view the grandeur of the Lord's grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I do think that the church will have a, a mutual respect too. It's not that the church has to be in the front and everybody else is the audience. But I think every one of us is going to look at each other and say, Wow, look what God did with Old Testament saints. Look what God did with tribulational saints. Look what God did to millennial saints. We're going to be just as impressed as they are, because there's no competition there. We're not vying for one work to be greater than the other, but we're all recognizing the work of God. And what He's done in the lives of different people and different plans and different ages. And He's that kind of a God who can do it all. And even in all its uniqueness, it still comes back to one great God. And that's where the focus will be, because all of us will gather together our wows and present them before the Lord in praise. But we're going to be sitting there, folks, as a display forever about how great the Lord's grace is toward us. You say, okay, does that make these thrones important? Yes, they do. And how long are they going to last? Forever. Forever. Don't forget that some of these groups I just mentioned here will make up that phrase I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes called the nations. All right? Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But think of this first. If all of this is going on around that throne, it's going to be an eternal praise service. All right? You say, but we only do one hour and 15 minutes here. What's eternal like? I remember talking to a youth group many, many, many years ago, early in my ministry. One of the teens says, aren't we going to get bored? You know how teens are. We're going to get bored. It's the same thing every day for all eternity. Folks, I'll let you answer that. You think it's going to be boring? Anybody going to look at their watch up there? Hmm. Think about that. I could add, tell you what Tavier would say. You know, Fiddler on the Roof. He had something that he dreamed of. Do you know what it was? It was in his song. It was this. If I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall and I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every, every day and that would be the sweetest thing of all. Just for a few hours. How would you like eternity to sit and talk about the holy book? I've thought of this before, and it's just my imagination, folks. I, I just tell you that. But I think that when we sit there in heaven at the feet of Jesus, and he starts to open up this book to us and explain it to us, I think eternity will be necessary. 
to understand all that there is to know about him. I don't think we're ever, really, I wonder, I don't know if we're ever get to the full understanding of every single thing there is to know about him. Right now, we know so little, don't we? We know so little. How significant is it to repeat this? God's throne will be there. We will be there. We shall see him and nothing will cloud it. Nothing will prevent our full worship or our full comprehension of what he's going to teach us there. I think that's a fantastic thing to see. God keeps repeating it. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. Will you be there? Oh, here's that pastor again. Yes, here's the pastor again. I'm going to ask you again. Will you be there? You will only be there if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You cannot go any other way but through Him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. And if you have faith in Him, you'll be there. That's why I ask you. He will be there. Will you be there? Only you can answer that. Only you know your relationship with Him. Side note. Second important thing. The nations will have access to the city and to its provisions. The previous chapter, verse number 21, talked about the nations. In verse 24, the nations will walk by the light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And I think, what a curious thing. What do you mean by nations? What do you mean kings of the earth? In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Who are these nations? One commentator said, Oh, it's just a figurative group. It's a reference to the fact there will be a bustling social life of eternity. Okay? In other words, there's nothing literal about it. So God didn't really mean nations, and he didn't really mean kings. He just wants you to use your imagination and fill in the blank however you want. Is that the route your pastor is going to take you down? No. All right, so dismiss that one. Another one said these chapters were actually a picture of the millennium period, and the New Jerusalem and the nations were simply Christ ruling over the nations in the millennial period. Now, why did the pastor go through such extent to say, this is the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, because the millennium is already over. But there are those who will symbolize these last two chapters to describe the millennium because that's what they think it all comes out to. It just leads to Christ reigning in the millennial period, somewhat symbolic, somewhat spiritual in nature, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And they don't put the distinctions there. In other words, they get very messy with their chronology. And then we all stand up and say, I'm confused. And it's easy to be confused when they tell you this is not really real, it's just symbolic of something else. Again, I'm going to take it literally. Some have said that this, these nations are just saved Gentiles. Now, part of that are say, okay, but the other part are say, but let's be more particular. Alright? Because the church is made up of what? Jews and 
Gentiles. And where's the church going to be? With Jesus as the bride, right, of Christ. Is that different from a Gentile in the Old Testament? Yes, it's different. So, I want to be more particular here. I'm talking not about just every Gentile that you could put on the map. I would suggest it's probably Old Testament saints predominantly from nations other than Israel. And is that possible that there are non-Jews in the Old Testament who were righteous people? Noah. Noah's a Jew? No, he's not. Who was the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham. When did Abraham come along? Before or after Noah? After. Noah was not a Jew. Surprise! No, Noah was not a Jew. How about Enoch? Enoch, oh, a great preacher of righteousness. A man who was walking one day in his 300th or so year, and suddenly, boom, the Lord shot him up to heaven. Enoch, was he a Jew? No. No, he wasn't. He was before Noah. Oh, what about uh, Seth? Who's Seth? Okay. Old Testament time. Well, oh, yeah, we've got Seth. We've got his name in there. We've got all kinds of individuals. You can start going through a whole list of things. How about Abel? You know Abel? Was he righteous? He must have been a Jew. No? No, he wasn't. He was the son of Adam and Eve. What are you saying, Pastor? Quite possibly, there's a lot of Old Testament saints that were not Jews. I think you're going to find them someday living in the nations that we're going to talk about here. Who else? Well, tribulational saints. Are they all Jews? No. We've already talked about the tribulational saints. Do you know how they're represented in the book of Revelation? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Tribulational saints. Do you think there might be Americans among those? Everyone hesitates. Is that a trap? Tribulational saints. Millennial saints. They're not the church either, are they? Where do they live? On this earth? What do they represent? Nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Guess what? I'm thinking. There's probably a lot of people making up that group if you take the church out of the picture. A lot of people. And you say, well, maybe you're just rationally rationally guessing some of these things. I think it'd be a good study. You want to do it? You go ahead and study it. Write a paper. Send it to me. I'll read it. I won't grade it. I'll read it. But the primary thing that we know about this new heaven and new earth is it's a place where righteousness dwells. That's what Peter says. Righteousness dwells. And he stresses that because that's what the new heaven and the earth will look like, where righteousness dwells. Do you know, if you go back to the life of a man named Simeon, do you know who he was? 
that old guy in the temple when Jesus was born, that he wasn't going to die until he got to see the Lord's salvation. You know what his prayer sounded like? I'm going to read it to you. It's in Luke chapter number 2. Just listen to these words. Luke 2, verse 30, uh, verse 31, 32, right in there. But starting with verse 30, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You know what? God is forever going to mark that distinction because he wants to. He will have the nations in eternity. Think of it. Righteous individuals representing nations with leaders over them. Kings, he calls them. I say, that's what the scripture says. So I believe it's going to be true. How it looks, I'm not exactly sure. Now, I've got other guesses, if they're worth anything. But I have this other guess that they're primarily going to be agriculturally based. Sounds good for farmers, doesn't it? You always have a field to work on, I think. But agriculturally based, because the nations will walk by the light, it says, verse 24, Chapter 21, verse 24. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What is that? What are they bringing with them? It says in verse 26, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And I said, well, glory, I understand it has to do with something praiseworthy. But what is honor? Honor is something of value. What is valuable in eternity? that they will carry with them and bring before the Lord. That's a wild guess for me. But I'm thinking that it has something to do with agriculture. That's my wild guess, all right? Don't hold me to it. If I'm wrong, don't say, ah, you were wrong. All right. But the point is that I think something is here, and I'll show you in a minute why I say so. But there are provisions that the Lord talks about in this new Jerusalem. The nations will have access to provisions. Number one, there's a river there, right? Right? Chapter 22, verse 1. I saw a river of the water of life clear as, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And by the way, in verse number 22, it ran right down the middle of the street. A river of life. What did Jesus say about this before? Well, if we go back to chapter 21, verse 6, he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. Has he ever said that before? Remember where I started the sermon? Chapter 7 of the book of John. Anyone thirsty? Come to me. He repeats it again in verse 17 of chapter 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. Honestly, folks, that would be a whole sermon by itself. There is water there. And apparently, it's meant to be drunk. Get the picture so far? Thirsty people are coming to have it. I don't know why they're thirsty. All right? I know this much. There's water there. 
and is meant to be drunk. Let's go on a little bit. Chapter 22, verse 2, there is a tree there. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Those who like to draw pictures, try it. There is one tree on both sides of the river. That's what I think it says. And that tree is bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Red Haven, Contender, Desert Gold, Early Ground Day, Bonanza, Reliance, Madison, Polly Whites, Georgia Bells, Florida Grande, Desert Red, Red, Tropical Sweet. They're all peaches. Twelve different kinds. Surprise? I could write a commentary too. It says there are twelve kinds of fruit on the tree. I said, wow, wouldn't that be great? Is this the same tree of life that we read of in Genesis? Remember there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Is that the same tree? Remember there were two trees in the garden. There was a tree of life, but what was the other tree? Knowledge of good and evil, right? Which was the one, don't eat that, they did. The tree of life. Promise in uh, Revelation 2, verse number 7. To the church of Ephesus, he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I would say, well, was he specifically meaning the same tree or a different tree? A tree of life? No, he said the. He used the definite article there. To me, it kind of stands out a little bit, and he's not talking about any tree. He's talking about the tree. Is it possible for God to transplant a tree? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm going to just guess that there's a distinction here on purpose, that this might be that very tree that was in the Garden of Eden. Might be. I think it could be. But what's interesting about this tree, no matter what, is that it yields its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And stop right there and say, what? Healing, what does that suggest to you? Illness. Is there illness in the eternal state? No. This word healing, by the way, the Greek word translates to the word therapeutic in English. And most commentaries say it's just to keep up the well-being. It doesn't suggest that they're ill. So people are eating the leaves of the tree, eating the fruit of the tree. And what's intriguing is, as soon as that was all said, it says in chapter 22, verse 3, there is no curse there. There is no curse there. But remember before, there's no death there. There's no pain there. There's no crying there. There's nothing there. This is a tree that is providing something for the people who come. They're eating Right? So there's drinking of water, there's eating of fruit. I really can't do much more justice to it except to show you that the nations will have provisions in that city that they will come in to receive. That's what it says to me. And you just have to wait to get there and see how close I actually came to describing that for you. 
But that's what I think is important. The Lord wants us to see that. There are people who will be there, and there will be righteous people, saved individuals, if you will, but they will be standing there also having access to the throne. But there are nations on this earth. Interesting picture, isn't it? God likes nations. What's the third thing? The Lord God will be the light of that city. The light source. They will have no more night. Verse 22, verse 3. The Lord God, the throne of the Lamb, or the God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no longer any night. Nor will they have need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun. That's going to be odd for us. No moon, no sun, no need for lamps, no electricity, no power bills. Nice. Because the Lord God will illumine them. This is quite unique to us as well. It's not what we're used to. No night, no sun. I don't think there's a calendar there. How do you set your watch? It would be different, won't it? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you know we can even take that literally when we get there? Because that's what he is. The light of the world. We understand this world. We understand the darkness that's in it now. We live in the midst of darkness, don't we? Often in Scripture, darkness is a reference to sin. Often it's a reference to bondage. It's the course of this world. It's the condition of being lost, being unsaved. Darkness is a description of the kingdom of Satan, too, in Scripture. And we've been called out of that kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred out of it, Scripture says, into the kingdom of His marvelous light. I love that. Someday we'll know the full ramifications of that when we get there and say, wow, what a difference that makes. But while you're waiting, don't forget what Peter has admonished his people to hear. You are a chosen race. You are a priesthood, a royal one, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he did all that so that you might proclaim, and I might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Wait till we're there and we can give the praise to him as much as we can about what he's done for us. But you know what? You don't have to wait to start proclaiming it. Because that's our mission right now. Do you know that? We're on this earth right now in the midst of darkness. And who needs to see the light more than those in darkness? Aren't you glad somebody showed the light to you? We're called to share the light. I love that phrase in the New American Standard. We're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you think that was excellent? Say so. Say so. Proclaim it, folks. We're in for a very exciting future from what I see. I am very eager to see all of it. But how many can we take with us? How many can we take with us? If the book of Revelation 
is for the church, and that's what I've told you so many times, is for the church, then the application of the message is for the church. And what is it for the church? To save us? No, we're already saved. But what is its application for us? To remind us we are only here for a short while. We are only here for a short while. There's a lot yet for us to see and to know and to do. And for these few weeks, we're here. We're here. I'm going to talk about the urgency of this in a few weeks. You know that. We would not have anyone to evangelize in heaven. There will be no soul winning going on outside of this earth. Should we not get busy? Should we not get busy? What the Lord has done for us, shouldn't we be so excited we got to share it? I know, folks, we live in a very wicked world. Those who leave this earth without Christ have no hope at all. But you and I have this hope, don't we? We have this hope. We know the truth. How can we keep our mouths quiet? When the world needs to hear what we have to say. It needs to hear about Jesus. If nothing else, consider the wrath of God to be the rally cry for those who will go into all the world and preach the gospel. We know the blessings of forgiveness. We know the blessings of mercy. We know the kindness and grace of our Lord. And our world needs to hear that right now. Share it with somebody, would you? Start with somebody, but tell them about Jesus. Heavenly Father, what a great chapter we're digging into. What a glorious thing it will be when we are there by your throne and we see our God and our Savior face to face. We long for that. You know it's in our heart. We long for that. We would love to be separated from this world and its sins and its darkness and its captivity and its bondage and all the other things that we see and struggle with. We long for that day. Yet, you have left us here right now for a purpose. We are your ambassadors on this earth. We are the witnesses of the difference your grace makes in a life. There's nobody on this planet right now that's beyond your reach of grace. Nobody on this planet that you cannot save. And yet somehow you chose to use instruments like us, Lord, to open our mouths and proclaim the truth. And I pray that we might go about our business, Lord. Go about our business. This is not just so that we can enjoy eternity forever. I know that's going to be great. But put it in our hearts to want to take somebody with us. Help us to open our mouths this week. Maybe to one person. But may there be another person coming to your glory. Because you used us to proclaim this message. Thank you, Lord, for doing it for us. Thank you for that person who once shared the gospel with us. That we might know the truth. That we might be included in this number. How wonderful it is that you loved us like that. Give us your love. 
your eyes for a world, your compassion. Help us to reach out, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.